I would like to invite you this morning to turn with me to Psalm 63. Psalm 63. Today we're going to be taking a step backwards. Now, two weeks ago, two weeks ago, we spoke about David and Saul's battle between each other, them chasing Saul chasing David. We saw what David did in the city of Keilah and that Saul came after David and thinking that he was doing the right thing to kill David and Keilah. And that how David fled and fled into a cave. And we saw how David spared the life of King Saul, though he had it in his hand. But this morning we're going to be taking a step backwards. Two weeks ago, whenever we went through the story of 1 Corinthians 23, of the history of the situation in Keilah and David and Saul, it kind of breezed over. We kind of went past it pretty quickly. But Psalm 63 was written specifically during that situation. So we're going to take a moment and take a step back to Psalm, uh, I'm sorry, 1 Samuel 23, and take a moment to observe in the Word of God this morning what happened there and why Psalm 63 was written. So, if you would, if you're able, stand with me with the reading of the Word of God. We will read Psalm 63. A Psalm of David, when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals, but the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exalt, for the mouths of liars shall be stopped. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. This morning you may be seated. So this song, this sermon of the soul, we're going to be seeing that a lot as we go through the summer, that a lot of these songs that were expressed out of David, who penned them and wrote them and sang them, were expressions of sermons to his own soul. A necessity to be able to tell his own self what it is that he had experienced, what God has done in his life, to be able to walk by faith and move forward. Because the mind and the heart are oh so fickle, are they not? The Lord could deliver us and do a mighty work in our life on one month, and then two months later, we stub our toe and be like, Oh, what is going on, Lord? My faith. Only to forget those things that we've been delivered from. So David, David himself would write these and pin these as a way to remind his own soul of the things he went through. Anytime he was probably in the midst of loneliness and feeling cast out and feeling downcast, I imagine he was sitting there reading Psalm 63 to be reminded of the situation that we're going to dive into today regarding Keilah. So let's take a look at kind of where David's journey has been to get us up to speed. So David, if you don't know, was anointed to be king. Saul had done some things, and the Lord told Saul that he was going to remove his kingship and give it to David. Now, the interesting thing about David being anointed was that he was the most unlikely to be selected. His dad even forgot he was in the field. So whenever Samuel came and all of the brothers were there, they're like, wait a second, this can't be right. There's somebody missing, I think, is there? And his dad's like, oh, yeah, he's out in the field. 
So by all means, this anointed king would not be qualified. He wouldn't be looked upon as somebody who would be the best of his field. He was selected out of the field of shepherds and said, this will be the future king. And everyone's like, this guy? He's scrawny. He couldn't fit into armor that was designed for men. He was running lunch back and forth whenever the battle between the Philistines and Israelites. David was anointed king, though he was the smallest among his brothers and forgotten by his father. He served in the king's court to soothe the soul of Saul with song. He served the Lord's anointed while he was being prepared. Though he was anointed to be the future king, he didn't run up to Saul and be like, bro, you're out, I'm in, hop off. He continued to serve faithfully in the court of the king, not knowing that during that time he was being prepared to become the future king, that he would serve in those courts and learn of how kings do their work, how it is they govern the kingship or the kingdom. So David would be learning all this all at the same time, soothing the soul of Saul. He stepped by faith in the power of the Lord to remove the affliction of Israel, Goliath, that his experiences as a shepherd delivering the sheep from bears and lions, the Lord or David thought, the Lord has this who is this guy? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine to come against the army of the Lord? He stepped out by faith as a picture, as an image, a pre image of Christ who would defeat the ultimate enemy, the resolve or the reproach of God's people. He served in the king's army in delivering the Israelite people from the oppression of the Philistines. So he had not been king yet. The Lord guided him, sent him through a lot of stuff. He's done a lot of work, and he's not king yet. But he's faithfully serving. He became hated by Saul and loved by Saul's sons, Jonathan and Saul's daughter, Michal. He received God's blessing, and Saul did not like that. The Lord was building David up, securing him to become the future king. And Saul did not like the idea of losing his throne. So he was pursued by the king through those who loved David to bring destruction to David. Saul used his own family, his own ones, the very ones who loved him, to try to bring destruction to it, only for David to flee. He fled to a priest for help and food, only to have that wicked king destroy the priest and the town for the aid that David received. This is the depth of evil against God's called king. Saul had reached the depth of his own wickedness to be able to execute such a terrible disaster amongst the people for his own selfish gain. For his own selfish gain. So now, the Lord has called David to deliver a town from the oppression of the Philistines. Right in the midst of his own affliction and fear of Saul. In the midst of it, he's fled to the wilderness and you're going to see here in a moment, the Lord said, hey, I need you to go save a people from the oppression of the Philistines. I need saving right now. What do you mean? While David had his own problems to deal with, while David needed deliverance himself, the Lord has called David to step out in faith once again. So this is the question this morning. What will conquer in the hearts of God's called when met with various trials? Faith or fear. Faith or fear. This brings us to number one. Number one, the call. The call. We find this in 1 Samuel 23. 1 Samuel 23. We'll be going through the whole chapter. 1 Samuel 23, starting in verse 1. Now they told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are robbing the threshing floor. Now right out of the get-go, verse 1, it is somebody else that tells David of these terrible news. David could have been like, well, what do I care? I mean, I'm not Keilah. Who am I to know these things? He received terrible news about a city being overtaken by Philistines. Verse 2. Therefore, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go and attack these Philistines? Immediately, David saw this situation where he received this news and saying, okay, Lord, you must have a particular reason why I'm receiving this. So he inquires of the Lord, shall I go? And attack these Philistines. And what does the Lord say? Go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. In the midst of his own trials, in the midst of his own affliction, in the midst of his own loneliness being cast out away from his family in the wilderness somewhere, the Lord's like, oh yeah, could you go do me a favor? 
go save Keilah from the Philistines. Now David, immediately, like I said, went right to the Lord to inquire of the Lord. Hey, Lord, is this what you want me to do? Look how David's men react. Verse 3. But David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more than if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? He's like, David, do you remember where we're at? We're on the run ourselves. Out of the midst of the fear, they turn to David and say, Look, I don't think this is a good idea. I don't think this is a good idea. We're in a rough spot. Now, by all logic and reason, David could have been like, Oh, yeah, well, you're probably right. We probably should hide out here. But look what David does. I like this guy. He's kind of wise sometimes. Then David inquired of the Lord again, and the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. So what did David do? And David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. He saved the inhabitants of of Keilah. Did the Lord remain faithful to exactly what he said he was going to do? Yes. Was the was David called out of the midst of his own affliction, out of the midst of his own problems to go do a work for the Lord? Yes, he was. What's that mean for you and me this morning? We have calls in our life that we sometimes won't ever understand, and sometimes those calls will come to you whenever you yourself need some saving. The Lord may have a plan in your life for the affliction that you are experiencing right now. And of course, other people may come into your life and say, hey, it's probably not a good idea. You probably shouldn't do that. You're going through some stuff yourself. We need to go hide somewhere. You need to go and just stay in your house and, you know, watch TV, I guess, and rest. Not that helps anybody. <laughs> But the Lord may beckon at you to do something. To have you step out in faith. To observe his glory in your life to build you up in that moment. Now, there are two. There are two primary deterrents in the call of God in your life. Two primary deterrents in the call of God in your life. Number one is the paralyzation by problems. Paralyzation by problems. We see this. And Luke 9, Jesus walking amongst the city is calling out to disciples. And then we see these excuses being brought forward by these disciples to whom Jesus is calling. Listen, starting in verse 57, as they were going along the road, someone told him, this is Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And immediately you're, oh, yeah, that's, that's right, I will. Peter said the same thing. Verse 58, and Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. He tells this guy, hey, look, if you in it for a particular reason, just know this life is not easy. It's going to be tough. You're going to be a sojourner in this life. You're going to be wandering through the wilderness of this life, longing for a home. Hebrews 11, a city built by God. So the guy didn't follow. Next one. To another one he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now that at first outright may sit there and, be, and feel cruel. Like what? I can't even have a funeral for my dad? What he's saying is when it comes to things in your life, Finding ways or excuses to be able to move around them, regardless of your situation in life, that all depends on your heart here. If you're trying to find a way to say, hey, I'm going to follow you as, well, as long as things are convenient, then I'm all in. But when things are more challenging, when it may require a sacrifice on our part, whenever it requires you to possibly have to step away from your family a little bit, to go to a place and experience things that you may not want to experience. You may lose loved ones while you're in the midst of the mission field. You may lose loved ones while you're away and can't get back because you're doing a particular work. If it's all possible, by all means, make it back. But it all stems from here. Oh, that's my way out. I can escape. That's the situation here. The guy was trying to find a way out. 
Next one. Yet another one said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, there may be times whenever you're called to a place and a time that your family may beckon you to come back home. If you are up here, separated from family, down in the lower 48, you may hear things like, oh, your kids are growing up without their grandparents or their aunts and uncles. What are you doing up there? You could do that here. That doesn't have to just be a separation locationally. You may have come from a different church than your family. You've come to a particular conclusion regarding the doctrines and the word of God and said, no, this is truth. This is truth, and I need to do what I need to do. And your family says, no. Maybe they're selling you turn their back. They don't really care anymore. They don't call you. They don't invite you to family events. But rather than abiding by you know or what the Lord is calling you to do, to stand firm and established in the faith and in truth of his word, you say, you know what, you're right. I probably should go back to be over there. Maybe not. David was in the midst of his own problems. David was in the midst of his own affliction. He was being sought at to be killed. And the Lord says, hey, go save the people at Keilah. And the Lord did the work, remained faithful, and saved so many people. All because David and his men remained faithful in the midst of their own affliction. The second one is the fear of outcome. The fear of outcome. This is the other deterrent. What if I fail? What if I go here and I fall on my face? I don't do what's right. I don't know what I'm doing. What if I fail? What if I hurt some people along the way? What if I don't know what I'm doing? What if this isn't the call of God but my own mind? Have any of you been there? Where you go through a hard season, and you're like, oh, man, maybe I'm not fit for this. Maybe I, I, I wasn't supposed to do this or that. Maybe I was just telling myself and thinking that I was supposed to do this. What will happen to me or my family? Fear of outcomes. The men we saw in verse 3 had the fear of outcomes. David, if we go down to Keilah, how much worse is it going to be for us? And you're going to see Saul... It's true. It does actually become worse for them against Saul. Fear of outcomes. Now, had David and his men not had abided by the faith of the Lord to go do what they were called to do, where would Keilah be standing? It probably wouldn't be. They probably cried out to the Lord needing deliverance, and the Lord calls David and his men to go deliver those people, and they're like, nah. We got our own stuff going on. So rather those people in Keilah being built up by faith, seeing the glory of the Lord work in deliverance in their life, they are destroyed and heartbroken. The hope to which they had, who built up, saying, hey, Lord, you're going to do a mighty work and deliver us from this, was deterred because of fear or because of problems. Do not allow these opportunities when the Lord calls you to discipleship. Whether he's calling you inside the church or to witness to particular people out in your community, to go to a particular city or move to a particular place. Don't be paralyzed by the issues that you could draw up to deter yourself from doing them. Nor do allow the enemy to get into your ear and move your heart to a place of complete destruction, saying, you know what, I can't do this. I'm not qualified for this. Well, neither was David. He was a shepherd boy. He didn't even stand out among his own brothers. And yet the Lord anointed him to be king. So what makes you think that you can't? When the Lord calls you to something, it's not your strength, your qualifications. It's his. 
his power, his deliverance. He just asked us to be faithful to the call. So David did. And he went to Keilah. Number two, the enemies of the called. The enemies of the called. We find this in verses 6 through 8, 1 Samuel 23. When Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David to Keilah, he came down with an ephod in his hand. Now, an ephod is the breastplate of a priest. It's how you inquire of the Lord. They go and approach the Lord to pray. That's all that means. Now it was told Saul that David had gone to Keilah. And Saul said, God has given me into my, or given him into my hand. For he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. Now, was he in a worse situation? Like his men said? Yeah, he was closed in. And Saul summoned all the people to war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. So we see in this situation, Saul sees this situation completely different. We talked about this two weeks ago. David inquires of the Lord and sees this issue and said, Lord, you need to deliver the people from Philistines. And the Lord called David and his men and they go do it. Saul's like, oh yeah. He's in gates and bars. I got you now. The Lord, he says, God has given David into my hand. David sees the movement of the Lord for the sake of deliverance of people. Saul sees the movement of the Lord for selfish gain. So what does he do? And this happens oh so often, not only in the world, but in the church. He starts building people up to his cause. And Saul summoned all the people to war. To go to war on one of Israel's own towns. Saul saw it different. Saul used the situation for his own desires and recruited people for his cause. While David followed the Lord's call to deliver his people from oppression, the enemy in the kingdom took advantage to deliver himself from his own jealousy and selfish ambition. This happens all the time. If someone's got an issue, specifically in the church or with Christianity, faith or whatever, they won't ever go at it one-on-one. They won't ever come to you one-on-one and be like, you know, I, I heard what you said, and I was kind of offended, you know, let's do some reconciliation. No, they start getting people to their cause. Hey, can you believe they said that to me? Can you believe they do that? I don't really like the way it's blank. I don't really like how they blank. I don't think they're fit for blank. And all of a sudden, now you're building up this army of people through gossip and using words to build a case. And you're like, oh, you know, we should just pray for them. So that these people's hearts are turned against their own brother or sister in the church. The world does this too. Anytime a pastor fails and takes a deep nosedive into the ground for the sake of their own fleshly desires and passions, anytime any Christian, prominent Christian, whatever you want to call them, celebrity, takes a nosedive and fails in front of the whole world, that's when the rest of the world's like, hey, I told you Christians are blank. Look at this guy. And they rally people to their cause in the comment section. Because people don't talk face to face anymore. They rally people to cause. So there is two oppositions of God's people that you're going to experience in this life, and David did, and we saw both of them. One is the world. And we saw this through the Philistines. The Philistines, the image of the Philistines. When the Philistines attacked the people of Keilah, David was sent to go rescue them. That is the first opposition. But let us make something very, very clear here. Because we are developing a lot of opposition right now, and the heat is getting turned up against the church, against the Bible, against you and I in the workplace. The heat's getting cranked up. But I want to make this absolutely sure in your minds and in your hearts that the very first thing that you understand is we are not fighting against flesh and blood here. Ephesians 6. Let's go there. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might. His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. That's people. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. 
Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm. Our battle, the things that you and I are going to experience in continued pressure and opposition is not people. Your neighbor is not your enemy. That which is driving him inside of him is. His flesh, if he is considered what they, what the scriptures say, a natural person, one without the spirit, their enemies towards God in your image, that Christ has redeemed, same thing. Your neighbor, your co-worker, your family member, they're not your enemy. You're not fighting against them. So whenever they come against you for your faith, and whenever they come against you when you take a stand or don't allow things in your home, it's not you. They can't deal with the light. Darkness can't deal with the light. So the principalities and powers in their lives are working against you, not them. So let's make that very clear. We're not fighting against flesh and blood. Second, there's a difference between the spirit of the world and the spirit of God. We find this in 1 Corinthians 2. When Paul was writing to the church at Corinth to let them know this broken people, a lot of them had pride and arrogance and they were puffed up. And they looked at people in a particular way. This is what uh, Paul was writing to the church of Corinth, instructing them to understand. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit that is in the person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world but the spirit who is from God that we might understand the things freely given us by God. If you have been given the Spirit of God, whenever you go to those scriptures, you are built up, satisfied, edified. When you go to Him in prayer, whenever you call out to Him and you see the glory working in your life, you get to experience and delight and joy in that. Whenever you go to someone who is not saved, who does not have the Spirit of God within them, and you say, oh, God has done a work and delivered you from that. No, the chemo did. No, it just happened to be a coincidence. I was lucky. I had my seatbelt on or whatever thing they want to throw out. Psalm 90 says, hey, Lord, teach us to number our days so that we can preserve uh, or that we can observe Psalm 91. I highly recommend it. Read it. We need to realize our finality. Those brushes with death that we come close to, those are supposed to be wake up calls. But the opposition is not going to understand what you see. Whenever you go to the Word and say, hey, look, this is what the Gospel is, this is what people say, this is what the Word of God says, they're not going to understand it. Why? And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So whenever your neighbors and friends and co-workers come up against you for your beliefs, again, it's not flesh and blood, but also they don't understand because they don't have the spirit to interpret spiritual things. So don't give up. You're like, I don't understand. I showed them all the scriptures and I debated them and I won the debate and yet they're still not believers. Yeah, because they're still a natural person. They need the spirit of God to understand those things. And the only way to get to receive the spirit Faith in the gospel. The natural person does not understand. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. Judged by no one. For who has under, who, for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. So our first opposition, the first opposition you're going to experience in your call in your life is the world. And you all experience it on a, a, on a probably a daily basis, some of you. The second one is kind of harder to believe. But in the kingdom, in the kingdom itself, Saul was anointed king by the Lord and still sat on the throne and pursued David to kill him. You're going to have opposition in the kingdom. They experienced this all throughout in the New Testament. Let's go to James 4. I love the way that James writes. He writes like a, uh, a grumpy older man who's just had enough, and he's just straightforward. 
Like, I don't have time to mess around. I'm just going to lay it to you straight, and you deal with it. So James 4, starting in verse 1. What causes quarrels? And what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet. This is written to a church, mind you. This is not written to worldly people. This is written to the church. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Told you. Do you not know the friendship with the world means enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it to no purpose that the scriptures say he yearns jealous over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. He's talking about works here. What hands have you, what have you done with your hands? What are the works that you've been doing? Because the things he's talking about are works of slander, and we're going to see it, slander, gossip, envy, jealousy. Draw near to God, and he will cleanse you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. A lot of people use that during COVID. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. They're like, see, it's in the Bible. We get it. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brothers speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. This should set everyone straight. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Strife and division in the church is due to the sinful passions of the hearts who have been consumed by their own selfish gain. I'm going to say that one more time. Strife and division in the church is due to the sinful passions of the hearts who have been consumed by their own selfish gain. Gossip. It is the desire to make one look better than others or to drag others down in the church. That's exactly what gossip is. That sinful heart says, you know what, I don't like that they look at me this way, or I think that they don't deserve to be seen that way, so I'm going to speak ill of them, or I'm going to puff myself up, make them look bad. I'm going to give you two examples of how this is done. Hey, so-and-so, I think we need to pray for so-and-so. They're going through fill-in-the-blank. I'm going to be very direct. When a brother or sister in Christ comes to you personally and says, Hey, I'm going through this thing. Could you pray with me? What they're doing is asking you to help carry the burden that they're feeling. That is not an opportunity to run off to pastor or leaders and say, Hey, so-and-so's got problems. Oh, we should pray for them. That is gossip. They did not come to me or to pastor, or to any leader and say, I'm having this issue, elders, please pray for me. They came to you. You are a brother and sister in Christ. You are equipped by the Spirit of God. You have been sanctified, sent, called of God to be able to minister and counsel to one another, to equip one another, to love one another, to give grace and mercy to one another. Not just me. So whenever a brother or sister comes to you, they're confiding in you. Don't run off and use it as an opportunity to be spiritual. I mean, spiritual. We just need to pray for this person. So-and-so's going through porn or so-and-so's going, you know, we really need to pray for That's gossip. And I won't tolerate it. And the second one is this. Hey, did you hear? Did you hear that so-and-so? Whatever comes after that phrase, hey, did you hear? You need to be very, 
very careful about what you were getting ready to say. Because what is going to follow after that phrase can bring destruction to another person. That's why James says you can, with the tongue, set a blaze. It's a small member, and yet it brings life and death. Selfish gain. Envy. Like David experienced, Saul did not like what God was doing in David's life compared to his own. Saul just didn't like it. They sing songs about the things that David was doing compared to Saul. How is so-and-so teaching? I know more than him. That used to be me. I used to sit in pews with my heart and my mind completely closed to the reality of God's word because I was too focused on critiquing who was talking. And I feel sorry for my wife after service. I know she probably dreaded it because whenever we'd get in the car, I would unload. Well, actually, (laughs) I don't know what he's talking about. He got this wrong. That's arrogance. That's arrogance. The purpose of preaching is to bear the word of the Lord upon the hearts of the people, not to show how smart I am. Hey, I'm qualified. I'm Saul. I'm smart. I went to school and stuff. Let me show you. I know some Greek and Hebrew words. No, I care more about your own souls and the journey you're going through out there in your daily life on whether or not you think I earned my degree or not. I'm not here to impress you. I'm here to be with you. No one's actually said any of that stuff. I'm just throwing that out there. I'm preaching to myself right now because that was once me. And now I can sit and delight in anyone who preaches because the Lord's faithful to his church. Even when men are not, there might be nuggets of good truth in there you can glean from. You don't have to eat the weeds. There's grass there. He's faithful to lead his sheep to good pasture. Quarrels? Oh, here's another one. Why do they serve there? I'm better at blank ministry. Cut it out. Quarrels? The desire to be seen as wise or smarter than others. It's ego-driven and selfishly intentional. Worthless quarrels do not unite but divide. Divided over secondary and tertiary issues. Well, actually... So-and-so says in this book, chapter, blah, blah, that this is how things should be done. Congratulations. I'm glad somebody on a podcast told you that, and you now regurgitated it. I was watching on YouTube the other day that this is how things should be done. Cool. I'm glad uh, that's where your attention is, rather than the word itself. Because this is what the word says to do. Divided over secondary and tertiary issues. Priscilla and Aquila did not correct Apollos in public, but guided him in the privacy of their own home. When Apollos went and preached, he got the baptism wrong. He didn't know the full understanding of the baptism of Jesus. And Priscilla and Aquila, what did they do? Did they stand up and be like, no, you're wrong. You're not right. Or did they approach him afterwards and be like, you know, I don't think you should be preaching because you got this wrong. Or afterwards getting in the car being like, I don't like that guy. That guy doesn't know what he's talking about. Priscilla and Aquila said, hey, Apollos, come. And what they showed him by grace, they sat around and had a meal about it. Apollos was understanding. He was built up, equipped, edified, and went on to do incredible things in Macedonia. Because Priscilla and Aquila did the right thing in helping him. Just because your brother and sister hasn't gotten some things figured out yet doesn't mean you get to squash them with your knowledge of insert internet pastor here. Because that's where it all comes from. The moment internet celebrity pastors start being used to check the church on whether or not they're doing it right is the moment you should cut that off. Because that internet pastor doesn't know you. 
They don't know what you're going through. And if you ask them to pray for you, they're not going to even read your email. It's probably going to be some secretary and hits the spam. But Blake and I will look at each other in the room. They will. Stop fighting. We're all trying to do this together, unified, with grace. We learn this just a little bit before James 4. Look what James says has to say regarding this issue. Who is wise and understanding among you? What does it say? How do you describe or observe someone who's wise and understanding? By his good conduct. Good conduct. Let him show his works and the meekness of wisdom. But if you are bitter, <laughs> there it is. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder, every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Is our church spurned to peacefulness, gentleness, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits. If it is not, then jealousy and selfish ambition exist. Let it not be so. When the church is divided, then the mission of the church goes nowhere. There's so much infighting, we can't do anything outside. Let's not be so. So that is the two enemies of the called. Thirdly, dry and weary lands. Dry and weary lands. Starting at verse 9 of 1 Samuel 23. David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him, and he said to Abiathar, the priest, bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord God, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. Then David said, Will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, They will surrender you. Then David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Keilah, and they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the expedition. That was short-lived. And David remained in the strongholds of the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. David inquired of the Lord for preparation for what he was about to experience. He heard about the news. He heard that Saul and the people of Keilah were going to turn him over. So he pled and inquired of the Lord to prepare him for what he was about to go through. We, all, we will all experience dry and weary lands as we follow the call of God in our lives. Lands like this. Lands of purpose. Why is this happening? I thought I was doing what I was supposed to do. Sometimes we equate the lack of trials as confirmation of the call. Lands of loneliness. Lands of loneliness. Feeling out of place with no one by our side. Even feeling as if God is not there. David was by himself with his men. And you're going to see when we go through Psalm 63 again, what it felt like to be out there by himself with his men. Elijah fled and desired death for fear of his own well-being and loneliness. Lands of regret. Lands of regret. Maybe I'm not doing what the Lord has called me to do, so I should just give up. Lands of lacking. Why do I feel this way if I'm doing what the Lord wants me to do? If I'm being faithful, why do I feel like this? Why are you so downcast, O oh my soul? I am hungry and thirsty, but find no fulfillment. 
David, in the midst of all this, provides a reflection of his soul in the word of God as a sermon to the soul for those who are in a dry, weary land. Let's go back to Psalm 63. just got done doing a work for the Lord to deliver a people and now he's on the run outside by himself and his, his men not knowing what's coming next. Psalm 63. First we discover the calling of the Lord is number one, sacrificial. It is sacrificial. Starting in verse one. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Where is he? He's completely cut off. He doesn't know what he's going to do next. All he knows is that Saul and Saul's people are coming to find him to kill him. And that's all he knows from this point. He inquired of the Lord. And that's all he knows. He's out in the wilderness just sitting there. And so he's preaching to himself. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Those are the two things he recognizes to which he's seen and experienced in his life. Verse 3, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. After all that is said and done, after all that he is experiencing in the midst of his affliction and fear, he says there's one particular thing that is far better than life itself, and that is what? The steadfast love of the Lord. Now, at first you might find that phrase steadfast love to be one of an emotional account. It is not. It is a covenantal account. The steadfast love of the Lord is sure, fast, and steady, never failing. David was anointed to be king. His life was on the line. So now he had to choose. All right, do I fear for my life and try to rescue myself? Or do I have faith in the Lord that he's going to fulfill everything he said he was going to do? Will the Lord deliver me from the hand of Saul and anoint me as king? So he's in the toss-up. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. First thing we see is that it's sacrificial. In seasons of plenty and in seasons of doubt, of drought. Proverbs 30, verses 7 through 9 says, Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food that is needful for me. Lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of the Lord. It is sacrificial. There are going to be times in your life that things are going to have to be given up. You're going to at some point have to step out in faith when things get challenging and tough and hard. You are going to have to choose between faith or fear. Am I going to abide by faith or am I going to fearfully try to do things on my own? Number two, it's faith fulfilling. Faith fulfilling. Faith fulfilling, verses five through eight. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Pop quiz. What is the Hebrew word for wings there? He uses it again. Kinah. Which he cuts off at Saul in Psalm, or 1 Samuel 24. Same Hebrew word. Two weeks ago when we talked about that word, one of the issues I find is rescue and refuge in the shadow of your wings. Saul was delivered from death because of the faithfulness of the Lord. That is where David went to find himself. And yet again, he sings it here in Psalm 63. Walking in faith along the way will reveal the steadfast love and faithfulness of God to confirm and empower you to, satis to satisfaction in the call that you have received. He was reminded of the good things that the Lord had done in his life. He has seen victory beyond anything imaginable. Therefore, he could calmly tell himself in the midst of the night or even in the night watches, 
of those glorious things that the Lord has done to establish and build him up in faith. It's faith fulfilling. Those moments of drought and doubt, of hardship and trial, whenever you look back and think of all the things the Lord has done already in your life, it can help prepare you for what you're about to experience, which is exactly what David is doing. And number three, it's sovereignly guided. It's sovereignly guided. Verses 9 through 11. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be the portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. It is sovereignly guided. The Lord's ends will always be met. In the midst of this moment, David's heart sought revenge, vengeance, and and retribution. But trusting in the Lord, David did during the process as his ends will be faithfully met in his timing. David and Saul had reconciliation in 1 Samuel 24. If David had taken things into matters in his own hands in the midst of that moment that we saw in those last three verses, he would have just killed Saul. And I'd be done with him. But he didn't. And Saul and David were reconciled. So sometimes the Lord has a greater plan in the midst of your affliction than what you saw in those other verses. That can bring you redemption and reconciliation. So in conclusion... So in conclusion, when it comes to the call of God in your life, the things that you're going to experience as a disciple of Christ, there are three things that I want us to take away from this. Number one, number one, when times are challenging, the Lord has a plan within that trial. The Lord has a plan within that trial. While David was in the midst of struggle and affliction himself, the Lord called him to something greater. Not only did he call him to something greater, to deliver a town from oppression, he delivered David out of the hands of Saul, even though he was in an unfavorable position. When times are challenging, the Lord has a plan within that trial. Number two, opposition can come, even within the kingdom. Even within the kingdom, opposition can come. Paul dealt with this himself. You're like, no way. I thought Paul was like, The super apostle. No. He dealt with slander, gossip. They made fun of his stature. They made fun of the way he spoke. They made fun of everything about him. 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians. He addresses this. I have been a fool. You forced me to it. For I ought to have been commended by you, for I was not at all inferior to these super apostles. Yes, he's making a joke there. Even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. For in what we, for in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. Here for the third Time, I am ready to come to you. I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is your uh, what is yours, but you. Paul's making an appeal to the people of the church itself. For children are not obligated to save up for the parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. See? Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we take the same steps? Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, that you may find me not as you wish, that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you. And I may have to mourn over many of those who have sinned earlier and have not repented of their impurity. 
sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. Paul addressed it, brought the reality that he himself experienced the opposition in the kingdom too. So the last three chapters of 2 Corinthians, if you find yourself at the tail end of someone else's selfish gain and ambition, I highly recommend you let your hearts and souls be soothed by what Paul had to say in the face of it. Last three chapters of 2 Corinthians. And lastly, seasons of doubt and challenges will build the faith necessary to continue on the call. And we see this in 1 Peter. We see this in 1 Peter. Finally, all of you, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for this to you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense. For what? To anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may put uh, may be put to, to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. We saw that David experienced these very things, and that Saul still sought his life, and yet he remained steadfast. So, in closing, I have a prayer from the book Valley of Vision. And this prayer is going to be for all of you who are dry and weary disciples, who may feel exactly like David did, who may be on the tail end of some ridicule or slander, who may be being beat up and chased down by some opposition, who may not know what it is that God's calling them to, and you find yourself out in this dry and weary land. Here's a prayer for you all. Oh, my Savior, help me. I am so slow to learn, so prone to forget, so weak to climb. I am in the foothills when I should be on the heights. I am pained by my graceless heart, my prayerless days, my poverty of love, my sloth in the heavenly race, my sullied conscience, my wasted hours, my unspent opportunities. I am blind while light shines around me. Take the scales from my eyes. Grind it to dust, the evil heart of unbelief. Make it my chiefest joy to study thee, meditate on thee, gaze on me. Sit like Mary at thy feet. Lean like John on thy breast. Appeal like Peter to thy love. Count like Paul all things dung. Give me increase and progress and grace so that they may be more decision in my character, more vigor in my purposes, more elevation in my life, more fervor in my devotion, more constancy in my zeal. As I have a position in the world, keep me from making the world my position. May I never seek in the creature what can be found only in the creator. Let not faith cease from seeking me until it vanishes into sight. Ride forth in me, thou King of kings and Lord of lords, that I may live victoriously and in victory attain my end. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray this morning for those disciples who are in the midst of a dry and weary land, who may be experiencing some things, some opposition, some, so, some deterrence from the call in their life, who are walking about not knowing what the next step is, seeking your face to be built up by faith, to be able to endure that which they're about to endure, to faithfully walk in the midst of the unknown, to faithfully go in the midst of opposition and heed your call no matter what that may be, 
strengthen our resolve, strengthen our faith, strengthen our mind and our heart to whom we can seek to in the midst of these problems, in the midst of our own afflictions and trials. May our hearts and eyes be open to the reality of your redemption and your power and your plan. That even though we may be experiencing that which is tough, that we may be looking around at a land that has no water and food, and that we long and seek after you, that we find satisfaction, that your steadfast love is better than life. That in those moments that we don't know where to turn or how to be satisfied, that you are our satisfaction. That you build us up, that we may endure and see the glory of your work in our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.